Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that the coming, in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God pre-prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you very much. You might find it useful to have that passage open um, or on your device if you've got one, just as we come to the Lord's Word together. Uh, it's not my first time in Stoke, so I'm glad to be back. I came and stayed at your house, Pastor Howard. Do you remember that? For the Keel something or other. What was that called? The Keel Biblical Assembly. The Keel Biblical Assembly. There we are. And I first met Howard, actually, in Delhi. I was, I was counting up. I, my daughter was in a pushchair. She's 18, almost 19 now, so I think probably 17 years ago, something like that. So it's great to actually be here and to see you in the flesh and to be able to share God's word with you. As we do that, let's pray together. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you it was inspired by your spirit. He breathed it out. He helped those who wrote it down. Thank you that he's preserved it over the years. And thank you we have it now in languages that we can understand. But Heavenly Father, these words are just words unless your spirit comes to us and makes them alive to us. So please, send him, we ask. We want to know what it means to love and serve and follow Jesus. So we pray for the Spirit's help in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. What's your salvation story? We sometimes ask one another that question, don't we? How did you become a Christian? I guess you could answer it. And if you're not a Christian today, and maybe you're not, you will be sitting near someone who is, and they will have a story. Everybody's story will be different. My story, I became a Christian in 1982. You can ask me when we have a cup of coffee afterwards exactly how that happened. It was quite amazing. But everyone has a slightly different story. Every Christian has a salvation story. Um, some of them will be very ordinary. Some of them may be remarkable. But let me tell you about one story I know, which is perhaps the most remarkable one I know. These are the words of a man who became a Christian right at the end of his life. He said this, 
I place all my confidence in the Lamb, that is in Jesus, who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Perhaps slightly old-fashioned language to some of you, but very clear. I place all my confidence in Jesus, who died for my sins, who made atonement for my sins. And let me tell you why it's remarkable. It's remarkable because of who spoke those words. And in order to tell you who spoke those words, I need to tell you about a pastor. A pastor who was in the United States. His name was Henry Gorecker. He was an evangelist, really. He went around telling people the good news of Jesus. He described himself as a soul winner. He loved to preach the good news of Jesus. He went from town to town and people believed they became Christians when they heard what he had to say. Then the Second World War broke out and someone said to him, Henry, you need to go and be a chaplain in the army. Now, Henry was a pacifist. He wasn't really interested in the war and and everything that was going on in Europe. But he thought there are many, many young men there who need to hear the gospel. They need to be one for Christ. So he said, I'll go. And he went to be a soul winner, a chaplain in the US Army. Now, Henry's mother was German. And so after the war, some of the leading people in the the Nazi Germany movement were brought to trial at a place called Nuremberg. Some of you will know about that, very famous. And uh, some people came to Henry and they said, will you be the chaplain to the trials? Will you go and speak to each of these terrible people who have been accused of, of the worst crimes almost humanity has ever known? And Henry said, well, I'm a soul winner. They need to hear the good news about Jesus. I'll go, because I can speak German. He didn't go straight away. It took him a week to decide. He was really torn. But eventually he decided, yes, I need to go and take the good news to them. And just before they died, many men were um, uh, found guilty of the crimes against humanity and, and were killed as part of their sentence. And just before they died, Henry Gorecker led eight of the prisoners to Christ Jesus. They became Christians. And the most famous and perhaps most significant of those was a man called Joachim von Ribbentrop, who had been Hitler's foreign minister. He'd been right at the heart of the Nazi war machine. He'd been part of the small group that had planned and approved that terrible murder of millions of Jewish people and other marginalised people. He'd been part of that group. Yet those words I read out were his words. A convicted war criminal, found guilty, hung for his crimes, an architect of the Holocaust, and yet confessing Christ Jesus as Saviour and Lord, and saying, all my sins are paid for by the Lamb, by Jesus. Now, I wonder how that story makes you feel. It's scandalous, isn't it? It's a bit outrageous. It, it gets your heart pumping a little bit as you think it, just, it doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem just that someone like that should be allowed to become a Christian. That his sins should be dealt with. It, it just seems so scandalous. It seems offensive. When you think of the number of people who died in the Second World War, 50 million people died. And if they died without Jesus, they died without hope. And here is a man who is a convicted war criminal who has hope. 
Doesn't that seem scandalous to you? It does to me. But that, friends, is the scandal of amazing grace. And it is the wonder of the gospel. What would happen today if Putin turned to Jesus? I pray that he does. What would happen? Those of us who are believers would be with him in heaven forevermore. What about Kim Jong-un, North Korea? who puts Christians in labour camps and has them murdered. If he turned to Christ, I pray he does. You and I who are believers would be with him in heaven forevermore. And when we put it in those terms, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, seems scandalous, seems outrageous. And the danger is we can stop understanding exactly what the gospel is, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, the enormity, the wonder, yes, even the scandal of grace, that God's love could extend even to the worst of sinners. That's why Ephesians 2 is such a helpful passage, so familiar. But I've been reading through Ephesians recently and just going very slowly. And I've come to Ephesians 2 and there's been a freshness about it, a life about it. You sometimes familiar words, they just, they just pass you by. But these familiar words, they, they contain some of that, that scandal of the gospel. The scandal that is great news for everyone who believes in Christ Jesus. And, and let me say, if you are a Christian... Grasping this truth, grasping the enormity of what God has done, that is the only way that you will magnify, that you will exalt the grace and the mercy of God in your life. If you cannot grasp that, or if you have forgotten it, your life will be emptied of praise, and ultimately emptied of meaning. If you're not yet a believer, I pray you soon will be. But actually grasping what this passage has to say will lead you to Christ Jesus, who offers salvation. I've got three things I want to show you this morning. And the first of those comes in verses 1 to 3, which is every person's story. Every person's story. Verses 1 to 3. Our view of life generally is that you have to earn to get something. You have to work for things. In, in, in truth, we might not admit it at church, but in truth, we're always a little bit jealous of people who have lots and don't seem to have done very much for it. I walk into the newsagents um, most days and I like to chat to the, the man who's in the newsagent. And I guess, like lots of newsagents, he has a little screen just in front of his national lottery terminal that tells you what tonight's jackpot is. And on Friday, it said the Euro Millions jackpot is £43 million. And of course, I wouldn't admit to it in church, but I, I'm tempted when I see that to think, oh, wouldn't it be nice? All the things I could do with £43 million and not really have to work for it. But for the most part, we know we have to work, don't we? We, we tell our children, you've got to work hard at school so you can get the grades that you deserve and the grades you need for uni. Or if you're at uni, you need to work hard so you can get the degree that you need, so you can get a good career. Or if you're in work, you need to work hard so that you can get that promotion and you can move on to the next stage. 
Or if you're saving for retirement, you need to work hard and, and, and save well so that you can have the pension that you need to live, and so on and so on. But spiritually speaking, working hard is useless. Look at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Every person's story is actually a story of death. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. I don't think we need to make too much of those two words. Uh, Together they're encompassing everything that we've done that separates us from God, that alienates us from God, which is what death is. It's it's being far from him. It's not being on his side, not being under his care, not being under his love, not being under his protection, which, as we shall see in a moment, is a terrible place to be. Now, of course, the transgressions and the sins that cause our death, my death, your death, they're different for each of us. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that any of us here are anything like von Ribbentrop. No, no. But our transgressions and sins make us dead before our God. They all take us to the same place. And therefore, every person's story is the same. Yours, mine, every man and woman in the world, every adult and child in the world, dead without Christ Jesus. And and what has brought about this death? There are three little clues in our passage Three little clues as to what has brought about this death. So verse 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. What what causes our death? What leads us to transgression and sin? Uh, First of all, it's the environment in which we live. It's the world in which we live. Now, there is goodness in the world, isn't there? Didn't you see that during lockdown? Neighbours being kind to one another and, and so on. So there is goodness in the world. But overall, if you read the news, what do you see? You see evil in the world. You see evil in Memphis, don't you? Where, where five police officers, police officers, could, could attack an, another man and, and beat him to death. There's evil in the world. That's the world in which we live. A cruel and malicious and self-serving and, and, and grabbing and so on. It's not just, though, the world in which we live. Look, verse 2, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It's quite a sort of long title, isn't it? The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Ancient people used to believe that the earth was where we lived, Heaven, right up there, is where God lived, and the evil spiritual forces were in between, in the air. So so the ruler of the kingdom of the air is the devil. It's the devil and and the the demons that he has working for him. Not that everybody is demon-possessed or or devil-possessed, but he is at work. He's influencing people. Uh, This is why we're dead, because of the environment in which we live, which is evil, the impact it's having on us, and because we live in the the kingdom of the devil, where he influences, where he rules. 
But there's a third reason too, which doesn't let us off the hook. Those two, perhaps, we could say, well, it's not my fault. But look, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The flesh is the, the inside me, the real me. You see, you see, the problem we have without Jesus is not just the external things pressing on us. That would be bad enough, but we've got problems inside. We have a human condition that leads to death, which is very realistic, isn't it? If you know how easily... I, I was driving along the M6 this morning, and um, it's, it's great, the M6, when it's empty, isn't it? And the M6 was empty this morning. I loved it. Four lanes... And um, there was my inside lane. I'm very good, stuck in the inside lane. And um, there's someone in the, um, who came past me. I, I had my cruise control on, so I knew what speed I was doing. I was within the speed limit. Someone zoomed past me very, very fast and then cut right in. don't know why. I had to brake sharply. And how quickly anger rises up. I restrained it, you'll be glad to know. I didn't go chasing after him or anything like that. But you know, how easily anger stirs up, doesn't it? How easy it is just to lose, lose your temper. How easy it is to lie about something. So, so we know this is true. Uh, the, um, the, the first reformers, people who really rediscovered the Bible as part of the Christian faith in, in England, they were really around just, just under 500 years ago. And they started writing down prayers in English. And they called these influences, very famously in one of their prayers, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You may have heard that little expression, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here, except he hasn't quite got it in that order. He's got the world, the devil, and the flesh. But those are the influences we're under. That's why we are dead. And because we are dead, like the rest, end of verse 3, we were, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Wrath is God's steady, righteous, holy anger at those who reject him and those who sin. It's not like me in my car when I'm cut up and someone comes in front of me. It's not that kind of anger. No, it's, it's, it's a thoughtful, steady, righteous, appropriate anger at things that are wrong and people who reject him. And because we are dead, apart from him, we are all by nature deserving of wrath. Which is a hard thing to hear, isn't it? I, I guess most of you are middle-of-the-road people. You don't live at the extremes of life, I imagine. You all look very sensible. Perhaps we don't think of ourselves as particularly bad. Perhaps if we can remember back to before we were Christians, we didn't do anything particularly bad. Nothing that would have landed us in prison or anything like that. Perhaps some of you did, but I'm sure most of us didn't. But this is how we were before God. We've got to let God's word describe who we really are. Not just decide for ourselves. Oh, I'm a good person. Now, what does God's word say about us? Dead in our transgressions and sins, and therefore deserving of his wrath. And that is every person's story. But... Verse 4 begins with a great word, but. Verses 4 to 7 are every believer's testimony. We've seen every person's story. Now let's see every believer's testimony. Their own little 
story. Because into this impossible situation, into this desperate situation, steps the God of love, grace, and mercy. And therefore, verses 4 to 7 are the story that every believer sings. And it is essentially the story of Jesus who is raised to life and we are raised with him. It's not simply that we've been rescued. It's not simply that we've been saved. Those though are both good words. It's that we are now living a resurrection life with Jesus. If you just notice down, if you've got a Bible in front of you, how the little phrase, with Christ, appears three times. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. We were singing about the resurrection, one of those songs earlier. And I sometimes think that as Christians, we think about Jesus' resurrection as being in the past. And our resurrection as being in the future. And of course, there's some truth in that. But actually, where do we belong? We belong with Jesus, who is already raised. We don't belong with Jesus on the cross. Jesus has died. He is raised from the dead. He's ascended to the Father's right hand. And that's where we belong, with the, the, the Jesus who was crucified for us and who was raised for us and is now ascended for us. We share that resurrection life. And each of these little um, phrases, um, they tie back to the problems that we had in verses 1 to 3. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. Just have a look again at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. So that we're, we're changed on the inside. So that, you remember, we were subject to our, our own desires, the flesh. That's been done away with because we're now alive with Christ. Or, or think about the next little phrase. We are seated with Christ. We have, sorry, uh, verse 8. We have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. So as we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, we're no longer... Um, above the, we're, we're no longer in the place where the devil is. We're no longer in the air under his influence. We're with Christ, who is above that place. And so his, his power over us is reduced. And raised with Christ, verse 6, I missed that one out just in the middle, means that we're, we're taken out of the world with all its influences. Now, I, I don't mean that we're entirely removed from these things. We're here in the world. But because we belong with Jesus who has been raised, the world, the flesh, and the devil lose their power over us. That is one of the most extraordinary things about this passage as you come to it freshly. It's not just that we've been saved and rescued. It's that our relationship with the things that caused us death has been transformed. So we used to follow the ways of the world. We've now been raised above that. We used to be under the influence of the devil in the air, but we're now seated with Christ in heaven above that. We, we used to be subject to the flesh, our inner desires controlling us that we couldn't do anything about. Well, now, now we are alive 
We're not dead. So every believer's testimony is not just that we are alive, though that would be amazing. It's that all those influences that made us dead are diminished. They are demolished. They are destroyed. And that's why the gospel is such good news. No wonder Paul calls it the incomparable riches of his grace. Riches beyond your imagination. When I walk into my newsagent, I can imagine £43 million. Pounds. I, I know what kind of house that might buy, or what kind of car that might buy, or what kind of holidays that might give me. But the riches of God's grace are incomparable. You, you can't compare them to anything. You can't put a, a value on them. The treasure of new life is without measure. And it's the extraordinary work of God's mercy and grace. Mercy is, is being kind to someone who doesn't deserve it. But you can show mercy to someone and, and not be very happy about it. You can kind of do it begrudgingly. You know, oh, all right then. You know, if a judge lets someone off, perhaps on a sentence, oh, all right, if I have to. You, know, you can show mercy without being kind and generous. So, so grace is a little bit more than just showing mercy. Grace is, is, is the manner in which mercy is given. It's given freely. It's given willingly. It's given with a smile, not with a frown. And that is how God is towards us. We were dead and deserving of wrath. But he has shown us grace and mercy. Just take a moment. If you're a Christian, just take a moment to think about that. How extraordinary it is that you were dead, you were deserving of God's wrath. And yet he, he showed you this, this, this scandalous but amazing grace. And he did it so that his name might be honoured. Did you see that verse 7? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He, he did this to put his grace on display. He did this to demonstrate his goodness and his love and his mercy to the world. There was nothing in us that was deserving of salvation. You know, when we think of um, the things in the world that display God's goodness and greatness and wonder what is it you think about I, I love a mountain me I, I love looking at a mountain takes my breath away even better if it has a lake by it so a lake and a mountain it's a great combo I love that snow on the top maybe um, it just sort of takes your breath away that kind of landscape and we look at that and we think oh isn't that God amazing the creator God and that's right to think that way but but the most extraordinary picture of the grace and the goodness and, and the love of God is not a landscape or, or rolling hills or a field full of sheep or whatever else may be in the, in the field. It is every Christian who can say, I was dead in my transgressions and sins, but I have been made alive in Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. And my relationship to sin is now changed. Yes, I still give in to sin, but his power over me is broken. Because I'm no longer in this world. My belonging place, my home place is with Christ. Raised with him in the heavenly places. 
my um, I, I love music and I love Christian music. I love Christian songs, new songs, old songs. I think one of my favourite lines in any Christian song that we sing is a line that was written by Wesley, I guess over 200 years ago, well over 200 years ago. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. Some of you will know that hymn. That our sin is cancelled. That the sin that, that causes us to be dead is, is, is done away with, it's cancelled, it, it's written off. But its power is also broken. So yes, I do give in to sin. I do get angry in the car. I can come to the Lord for forgiveness. But the power that that sin has over me, the power the world has over me, the power that the devil has over me is gone. Changed. We've seen every person's story. We've seen every believer's testimony. Then finally, briefly, let's look in verses 8 to 10 at every believer's calling. It could just end at verse 7 and we could raise our voices in praise and say, isn't the Lord wonderful? Look at what he's done. It's come to me freshly this morning. I can see what I was and I can see what God has done to make me alive. And it's extraordinary that he's given me his son. But actually, he calls us to do something as a result. He calls us to not do something and to do something. There's a negative and a positive. It's there in verses 8 to 10. Let me just read them again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, so two applications, implications of this change that God has made in us because of his grace and mercy. First of all, it's not to boast. It's not to think that we've done anything to deserve the great salvation that we have. I think verse 8 probably is the most famous part of this passage. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. That even the gift of faith comes from him. But the reason that Paul puts it here is, is in the end of verse 9. So that no one can boast. There's not much you can do if you're dead, is there? If you were to go along to, to Tesco's or Sainsbury's, wherever, and you look in the frozen food section, you look at a, a frozen chicken, it can't make itself alive. It can't do it. We couldn't make ourselves alive. So, so your story and my story, they're, they're stories of grace, through faith, through believing. We cannot boast. Now, I, I doubt you walked into church this morning and thought to yourself, oh, haven't I done well? Yeah, I'm a a good person, I've done well to get here. I've I've done well to to decide to become a Christian, clever me. Now, I don't don't, don't think I've ever met anybody who thinks exactly that way. But there is a, a, a subtle way, isn't there? That once we start forgetting that we were dead, and once we start forgetting that it's God who has made us alive, then we start actually to have self-righteous feelings, we're quite pleased with ourselves, we lose a sense of praise and wonder. And someone says to me in church, you know, I find it hard to praise God at the moment. I say to them, remember what you were, you were dead. And remember what God has done, he's made you alive. Once we start forgetting that, then praise disappears. Our, our heart and our love to, to raise our voices and to sing his praise just, just dissipates, it, it, it goes to the side. 
No, we cannot boast. We've got nothing to bring to the altar which would make God look upon us and say, oh, I like him, I'll have him in my family. No, we were dead. doesn't matter what our background is, what our ability is, what our capacity is, we were dead. And all of us have the same story. But there's a positive application too. It's there in verse 10. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is a calling, you see, for every person who is a Christian, for every believer, to serve the Saviour and honour the God who saved us. It's not that by serving him we can get saved, but once we are his, once we are his, his resurrection people, he has work for us to do. These works display our salvation. They don't earn it, but they do display it. They display the incomparable riches of his grace. Now, I, I think as I, as I go around churches, I don't really know any of you, I don't think. And um, I, I certainly don't know what's going on in your lives. But I, I think one of the things that's happened over the last few years, because of all that we've been through, is that we've, we have become weary. You know, we, we're tired. And we can become weary, not just of, of, of life in general and the routine of life in general, but we can become weary in church. We can get weary of serving. Now, when you get the rotors, we, we, um, do you, you must have rotors in church. Yeah. Yes, you know, that I won't, I won't tell you the, afterwards I'll tell you the joke about rotors. I won't tell you the joke about rotors now, but we have rotors in church. And um, our rotors go for six months, and they're always slightly odd months. They go from February... Um, for six months is, is one of our six monthly rotors. And so yesterday in my email inbox came the rotor, this massive spreadsheet for all the things that need to be done in church. We don't have our own buildings that we have to set up and put down and all that sort of stuff. And you know what? Um, I have, if I'm going to be honest with you, when the rotor comes in to my inbox, my heart just sinks a little bit. <sighs> Isn't it easy to get like that? It, it's easy to be weary of serving in church. It's easy to be weary of doing good, showing kindness to others, especially when you get nothing back. So it's easy to be weary of, of serving other people generously and graciously and giving your time and your money and your resources, perhaps even when others don't notice what you're doing. But actually the saved Christian life where we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus is a calling to serve. It's a calling to do the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And so one of the things I want to ask you this morning is how are you demonstrating the grace of God in your life in the way that you're serving? It's interesting, um, we've been looking at Hebrews in our morning services at the church where I am. And uh, we've just got to chapter 10. And one of the reasons for meeting together in chapter 10 is that we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. It's the same kind of idea. But as we meet together, we're helping one another live for Jesus wherever we are, in church, out of church, in our communities, in work, in family. That is the calling of every believer. Because we were dead, we've been made alive in Christ, and now as we live for him, we put his grace on display. That is the calling of every person who's a Christian. If you're a Christian today, that is yours. And it is mine. 
That is the amazing, scandalous grace of God, that we've been brought from death, every one of us, to life, to serve. When Joachim von Ribbentrop was led to the gallows, October 1946, um, Henry Gorecka, the pastor, was standing by the steps leading up to the gallows. And Joachim von Ribbentrop just turned to him as he walked up the steps and said four words in German, five words in English. Ich werde dich wiedersehen. I will see you again. Scandalous, isn't it? That such a man should be assigned a place in glory. But we're not saved by works, nor was he. We were dead, so was he. We are made alive in Christ if we're Christians. If his faith was genuine, I don't know whether it was or not, if his faith was genuine, he was made alive in Christ. And not only will he see Henry Gorecka, both now gone from this world, but they will see us. That is the amazing grace of our God, that same grace and mercy that every believer knows. And if you're a Christian today, you know. And if you're not a Christian today, I urge you to explore it. Talk to me, talk to John, talk to someone else. Discover this amazing, scandalous grace. Because every person's story is the same. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Every believer's testimony is identical. We are made alive in Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. So our relationship to sin is changed, transformed. And every believer's calling is not to boast, but to gladly put the love, grace and mercy of Christ on display as we serve one another, as we do the works that are prepared by the Lord for us to do. Let's pray together. And as we pray, perhaps if you're not a Christian, now's the moment to say, Lord, I want to be a Christian. I want to believe. I see what I am. I see what I am. I'm dead and I want to be alive. And if you are a Christian, may your heart be filling with praise at what the Lord has done. And perhaps even now you could be praying in your heart about the work that he has called you to do to put his love and grace and mercy on display. Father, we thank you for the amazing grace of God. Thank you that many of us can say we were dead, but now we are alive in Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Please fill us with your spirit that we might do the work you have prepared for us. And please, might being together in church, encourage us as we praise you together for our salvation, as we serve you together, as we spur one another on to love and good deeds. Please hear our prayer in Jesus' powerful and mighty name. Amen.